you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Greetings, comrades. Have you ever wondered what was it like to live in the worker's paradise? What was it like to stand in line for three hours to buy 200 grams of sausages while your government spent enormous resources to monitor its citizens and even more resources to build nukes that would be aimed at the West? Ever wondered how things happened on the other side of the Iron Curtain? Well, you're in luck, as I'm Kristaps Andresons of the Eastern Border Podcast, where we explain just that. The history of and the life in the Soviet Union. From the perspective of the common man. Using my journalism skills, I combine the historical sources with the tales of the people and add a dash of the ever-present gallows humor to give you all of this and more. Look for the Eastern Border podcast on theeasternborder.lv, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. But for now, enjoy this wonderful Dark Myths podcast. And remember, happiness is mandatory. See you on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun! He's gonna shoot the president! Holy smokes, I've gotta do something! All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. It, it looks that way. Wow. He was always rather vague about the specifics. But a policeman that I interviewed, in fact, the guy who arrested him, uh, Jim Bundren in El Paso, uh, remembered before the assassination, about three weeks beforehand, sitting with Nagel in a courtroom as he was about to be in, uh, indicted. And he ended up being sent off to prison, convicted, actually, of attempted bank robbery, which was total bullshit. Uh, but anyway, he remembered Nagel saying to him, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm just uh, glad I'm not in Dallas right now. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. How did he kind of fit into the assassinate, like into the into the web of conspiracy? How did he, you know, where what part did he play in all of that? It's it's a long, somewhat complicated story. But he had been a, a highly decorated soldier in the Korean War. He'd gone into military intelligence afterward. Been in Japan when Oswald was there in the late '50s and gotten an assignment uh, from the CIA to uh, keep tabs on him. 
Um, Oswald then went off to the Soviet Union as a defector or more likely a false defector uh, in some kind of military intelligence program. And uh, then when he came back uh, to Texas two and a half years later, Oswald, that is, uh, Nagel was assigned again initially by the Russians uh, to keep an eye on him, to see what he might be uh, up to in Texas. Mm. Nagel was a double agent for the Russians and the CIA. In other words, the CIA put him to work uh, as a seeming Russian agent. And um, in, it was in that context that he uncovered uh, not only one, but uh, several, uh, two other earlier uh, plots to assassinate President Kennedy that involved uh, anti-Castro Cuban exiles. And um, eventually Oswald was ordered, um, excuse me, Nagel was ordered by the uh, the Soviet intelligence agency to either convince Oswald he was being set up on this deal as the guy who was going to take the fall or uh, kill him in Mexico City. And rather than do that, um, Nagel did try to convince Oswald, failed to do so, and then uh, got himself taken out of the picture uh, by walking into that bank. What is up, good peoples? This is your boy Rob Clark. First off, I'd like to apologize for the little two-month break here. I've been doing this podcast for almost two and a half years now, on a weekly basis without a break, and I desperately needed one. Uh, had a lot of stuff going on, some health issues. All is good now. Your boy is back. And the voice you just heard is that of Richard or Dick Russell. I'm sorry. Dick Russell. Uh, speaking about his epic 800 plus page tome, The Man Who Knew Too Much, referring, of course, to Richard Case Nagel and his story. Today, we're going to take a look at what the actual documents in the official record tell us about Richard Case Nagel, not a story. Now, when it comes to Richard Case Nagel's story, uh, it's a fascinating one, and we're going to touch on many aspects of it here today, not just the documents. Um, and it leaves some unanswered questions, um, all of which are fascinating. And if true, uh, paint us a very interesting picture of the way things went down. But uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. And I got a special plea for everybody at the end of the show, me and Carmine do. So make sure you listen to the whole show now uh, because we, we're going to need your help with something if anybody out there knows anything about uh, this certain piece of evidence. So without further ado, let's get right into it. And here is... What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is the Lone Gunman Podcast, and I am your host, Rob Clark. Today, I got a great show for you. Carmine Sabastano, the author of Two Princes and a King, and the proprietor of Neapolis Media Group, and also a featured speaker at this year's 2016 NID Lancer Conference, joins me to talk about Richard Case Nagel. How you doing, Carmine? I'm doing good, Rob. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Uh, I've been gone for a while, but I'm back, and uh, hopefully back on track. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. No, it's good to have you back, man. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes you got to take a little breaky break, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, oh, sometimes life just gets you by the go every once in a while, and 
gives a little squeeze, you know? <laughs> a, a call to action, so to speak. <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. But anyway, I'm back, you're back, and it, it's great to have you back on the show. I miss hearing your voice. And, uh, man, I, and I wanted to talk to you about Richard Case Nagel because, you know, like most things, you know, researching the JFK assassination is almost like a cyclical thing. You know, you, mm-hmm. something keeps popping up and you keep knocking it down. It keeps popping up and you keep knocking it down. And some things are easy to knock down. And some things aren't so easy to knock down. And some things are still, after all these years, you know, still a mystery. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about this guy, Richard Case Nagel, is, is because he's intrigued me the whole time. While his story, his entire story, is not quite clear to everyone. Um, you know, most people know, okay, this is a guy who walked into a bank in El Paso, Texas, in September of 1963, fired a couple shots into the ceiling of a bank, and then sat on the curb and waited for the cops to come arrest him. Everybody knows this story. Um... You know, and, and allegedly he had photocopies of Oswald's selective service identification on him, or Alec Heidel's or selective service identification. He had CIA names in a notebook. And I, I'm not sure if he initially stated the reason for him doing this, you know, inside the bank. But, you know, later on he would claim that he did it so he would be in in jail at the time of the Kennedy assassination, so he couldn't be caught up in in all this mess. And that, you know, he's he allegedly wrote a letter to Hoover under a, a alias, I believe it was earlier in September, um, informing him that, that you know there there was going to be an assassination attempt on President Kennedy. Let's start with Richard Case Nagel from 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 the beginning, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bank part, we'll get to the other parts, but let's start a little bit back about who Richard Case Nagel actually is, and a little bit more about him. Okay, well, uh, we'll start with, uh, Nagel joined the U.S. Army in 1948, and he is the sole survivor of a plane crash that left him facially disfigured with psychological problems. It was a really horrible crash, and everyone else died, except for Nagel. Uh, a year later, Nagel graduated from the U.S. Army Intelligence School in Maryland, and he served in Korea and was a member of the Army's Counterintelligence Corps in Japan. So, though he had, basically as time went on, uh, some of his mental issues would get worse, but he was lucid enough for most of the time that he was entered into the Army Intelligence Corps. So he was being trained, and he was advancing. In 1958, the counterintelligence service ends because of, according to the file, mental instability and all of his clearances were revoked. Now, was was Nagel, was his name an alias? Uh, did you run across anything about that? Uh, no, that's, that's, that's his name. Other people might have used the name. Hmm. But, yeah, but Richard Case Nagel is, is what is in all the files. Okay. Um, now, he's honorably discharged, which I think... You know, people from, you know, how we know about Oswald's dishonorable discharge. Right. Nagel's honorably discharged because I think they realized it was beyond his control what was going on. That Nagel wasn't intentionally acting, you know, in, unstable. It was just his mental, that whatever damage, you know, concussive damage his brain had suffered was making him act strangely. Yeah, well, he had had an outstanding service record before that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No, he, so he was highly honored and he wasn't an intelligent, you know, at least the beginnings of an intelligence career. And then right. it all basically goes awry. Um, so he's discharged from the army in 1959. The California State Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control employs Nagel as an investigator later in 1959. Now he does that all right for a couple of years. And then in the summer of 1962, he's suspended and dismissed by the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department. Now, this puts Nagel in a bad position because that was basically his only source of income. And he is, uh, he then gets into kind of a legal battle with the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department and starts arguing with officials that he should be paid for back pay that he, he actually should have gotten. And so while he's trying to earn money and unemployed, a month later, Nagel gets shot in the chest while setting up a meet for possible criminal purposes. Okay. Now, was, was he at this time married already? Uh, yes. Nagel, Nagel got married earlier, and his wife uh, from Japan had the kids. Oh, okay. And then she eventually denied him seeing the kids as his mental state got worse. Gotcha. So, Nagel, the strange thing about the shooting is that Nagel would not identify his assailants or furnish any information to officials, but he later files a civil rights complaint against the police for not doing anything about it. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, you don't snitch, snitches get stitches, you know? So. Yeah, exactly. It, it just makes no sense <laughs> that he would, I mean, you're going to keep quiet, I understand why, but it's like then he files a civil rights complaint against the police. Well, what are they going to do if you won't identify anybody? <laughs> True. I mean, they, they should have done their own investigation instead of relying on his, his information solo. But, I mean, yeah, if they just chose not to follow up or do a proper investigation, even without his cooperation, then he he may have been justified in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely murky. And, unfortunately, as we're going to see in some of the other documents, Nagel's story isn't always consistent. Right. So... He later requests, uh, withdraws his request for a hearing to receive his retirement contributions from the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department, and they eventually do give him a payout. August 17, 62, Nagels issued a tourist card at Los Angeles, and he subsequently enters Mexico August 24, 1962. This is where you'll start to see what I think drew people to make, you know, there are similarities between. You know, he didn't directly, he and Oswald definitely aren't copies of each other, and they definitely didn't do the exact same things. But Nagel's strange behavior is reminiscent of Oswald's later behavior, which is what I think is had some people think that they were definitely connected. Yeah, well, the, I mean, just uh, the whole, I mean, I know Miguel had a longer time in the service, but I believe he was discharged in, I think, October of 59, which roughly lines up with when Oswald was discharged, and I believe they were, well, I'm not sure if it's true, but Nagel alleged that he was uh, stationed at Atsugi in Japan at the same time Oswald was as well. But, uh, like I said, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, the thing is, is that it, it is possible. It is possible that he was at Atsugi, but I know that Atsugi had multiple bases that, that compound, so there was a counterintelligence training school in Japan nearby, but it wasn't in the same base as where people like Oswald would have been. Right. 
So it's, it's possible that they were there at the same time. Nagel later on claims that he met Oswald, but we'll, uh, when we go into that, I'll show you the problems with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's basically the first couple documents. Then, uh, so Nagel's gone to Mexico, and in the third document, he appears at the American consulate in Mexico City and is described as tense, nervous, and agitated. That sounds familiar. And antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah, this this his story sounds a little familiar, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it sounds almost like Oswald like heard about this guy and it was like, wow, <laughs> I'm going to do something very similar. <laughs> so, uh, Nagel claimed he was approached in Mexico City for recruitment, but he would not identify what nation or person approached him. He says this to the American embassy workers. Right at the time, I think later he does disclose uh, mm -hmm. who he was approached by. I think. Yeah, so Nagel asserts one job of this sort would be in New York. He then tells officials that he understood his claims might be used against him legally. Nagel stated that he was bitter, disgusted, disillusioned, and disaffected. He stated if he did go to some other country, it would cost the United States millions. He stated it, he was through being a good citizen and claimed he had gotten a dirty deal all around, which is in reference, I imagine, to how he got discharged from the Alcoholic Control Bureau, because Nagel... Um, you know, I mean, he it, it, it gets worse later on, but though he might have been justified in some of his claims about officials, he, he starts to blame officials and other people for a lot of things that he's kind of the author of. Um, same document, October 1st, he returns to the American embassy and questioned the staff on the status of his claim against the state of California. Nagel asks, what section of the embassy should he contact to renounce his U.S. citizenship? He was advised by the collection section of the embassy that they could not intercede for him in collecting money from the state of California. Hmm. So he's in Mexico at the American embassy trying to get them to do something about the problem he's having with the state of California. Makes sense, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> not really, but uh, yeah. I mean... I, he wasn't making headway in America, so he thought that if he went to Mexico, that would help. Crazy. And I hate to say that. Like, normally, I, you know, you and I have both faced it, I'm sure, anybody that has a reasonable belief in conspiracy based on substantial evidence has gotten someone call them crazy or a kook. That was one of the things that I despised that people would call me early on before they realized how much evidence I use. <laughs> right. But... Yeah, unfortunately, Nagel is acting very kooky. And but with him, we actually have a basis. You know, the crash, the disfigurement. You know how his life wasn't going as well as it had. There are reasons why he is unraveling, but I don't think that you know it's not. It, it's real mental illness, you know. And I think people like I, I was talking to you earlier about. Um, this is one of the few that I actually kind of felt depressed afterwards, a little sad, because I really think that he didn't understand what was going on sometimes, and he didn't realize that they were just shadows he was chasing. Yeah. Now, well, you know something, Carmine? Which, it, 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 back in this time, you know, in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, mm -hmm. you know, we know that they were... The CIA was experimenting with different forms of mind control, MK Ultra, things of this nature. And I've seen it said that Richard Case Nagel is referred to as a Manchurian candidate. 
you know, yeah, as yeah, if yeah, like something was yeah. done to him, you know, to make him act this way. That he's not just necessarily just batshit crazy for fifteen years and then back to normal, or normal batshit crazy yeah. back to normal. You know that maybe no, that's possible. Yeah, because I think when he was, I, guess, I, thought, I can't remember when it was. I think it was in fifty. 59? No, maybe 57. He was in the, when he was being trained for uh, military intelligence in Maryland. Yeah, that's that's pretty close to, you know, these other places like Fort Meade and Fort Hood and uh, some of the places where this stuff was going on, you know, like these experimentations. Uh, I mean, is it out of the realm of possibility to think that he might have been tampered with in some form or fashion? Give them. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, just uh, given the weird similarities that we're seeing to the way Oswald was acting. Yeah, I don't think that's outside. I don't think in Nagel's case that's outside the realm of possibility, and I also don't think that it's outside the realm of possibility that it might have been just the CIA. The CIA could have been doing that or not, but because Nagel was contacting, as you know, we'll see in some of the later documents, he was in contact with foreign powers as well, or who he thought they, they were foreign powers. So right. those people, too, could have been drugging him or using him for whatever purpose. There's a lot, yeah, there's definitely a lot of possibilities. I don't, I, I don't, you know, write everything Nagel says off as crazy. There's definitely some problems and inconsistencies, which I think, you know, reduce the chances of a lot of his claims being true. But somebody could have definitely been using him, even as a distraction, just to see how officials would react. Right, because yeah, I mean, he, you know, he later claimed to be a, a double or even a triple agent for the for the U.S. and the KGB. You know, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I mean, that's some deep, deep doo doo for lack yeah. of a better word there. But uh, who the hell knows? You know. Yeah. Well, I think that hopefully by the end of this, we'll definitely give the listeners a, a clearer picture of Nagel. And then they can make whatever decisions they want. But I think that we'll be able to at least answer some of the questions regarding the JFK case. Gotcha. So, um, so yeah. So he goes to the consulate. He says it would cost the U.S. millions. Uh, October 1st, 1962, he returns to the American embassy in Mexico. And he questions the staff and the status of his claim with the state of California. <laughs> <laughs> Nagel asked... What section, uh, oh, oh we, I talked about, yeah, he wanted to renounce his, where would he go to renounce his U.S. citizenship? He was advised by the collection section of the embassy they could not intercede. He seemed intent to incite officials and question what the penalty for going to an Iron Curtain country and the effect it would have on his citizenship. Nagel was told it would violate federal laws by the embassy. Right. So, <clears throat> the fourth document. So, Nagel leaves Mexico in late October. And November 16, 1962, he advises the FBI in New York City that he wants to expose the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control in California. In December, Nagel contacts the FBI and claims he was prior approached in Washington, D.C. by an individual believed to be working for the Soviets. He was recorded to be drunk and was unclear in answering questions. Five days later, at the Bay of Pines Veterans Hospital in Florida, he is diagnosed with chronic brain syndrome associated with brain trauma with behavioral reaction characterized by passive, aggressive, and paranoid features. 
And so I think we can definitely say that Nagel's prior crash had long-term effects on his mental state, despite the army officials still utilizing him. You know, that, that, that might be one of the biggest things that goes unsaid, as, according to Nagel, uh, you know, as far as regarding Nagel, is that he might have been having mental problems when they let him in to the in counterintelligence training. <laughs> and they basically pushed him along, knowing that that could be going on. Yeah. Certainly possible. So, I mean, I think it's definitely worth noting that, you know, they were going to use him no matter what as far as counterintelligence training, and then that would make it possible, as you said, that someone might have used him after that, whether it was official or non-official. Yeah, I mean, it's quite possible, because either way, when we get to some of his later claims about <clears throat> what he was assigned to technically possibly do... Still there, up? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, damn you. <laughs> I'm saying, uh, yeah, as we'll, as we'll see a little later... Um, once we get into what he was possibly assigned to do, um, why it really wouldn't have mattered or not whether he was all there. You know what I'm saying? At least what he alleges that they wanted him to do, which is why he did what he did at the bank. Yeah, so so then um, going back to the, uh, uh, the garrison document, it would be uh, page 45... And I believe the last one was 44. So, yeah, page later from the second document, because some of these, you know, they intertwine. Um, so, yeah, that, that would describe the, the hospital episode that we just talked about, where he gets the, uh, the paranoid features and passive-aggressive diagnosis. So then, January 1963, Nagel again contacts the FBI. He inquires, uh, and this will be the... Fifth, I believe, yeah, the fifth document. Um, he inquires um, if his Cuban or Russian sources gave him a pistol with silencer and microfilm, would he be permitted to give them to his contact? Okay. Nagel doesn't have a contact at the FBI, not an official one anyway, that is acknowledged or verified. So, but he, he has been in contact with the FBI. So maybe he, there's a person that he would often call that they just don't mention. And this was in early 63, you said? Yeah, this is 63. Okay. This is uh, January 63. Okay. So officials ignore this request, and Nagel proceeds to tell them of an unnamed man from Maryland in Mexico City that he asserts introduced him to individuals whom he believed were possibly Soviet agents. Huh. So a few months later, I believe April or May, he contacts the FBI in Los Angeles to discuss that he took his wife to court for visitation rights with his children. In June, Nagel visits a clinic and was referred to a neurological clinic for treatment. His diagnosis includes depression, tearful and nervous behavior, and the only phrase he would tell the doctors was, he's got to see his kids. So I think that, you know, you have the alcoholic board, uh, not alcohol, alcohol board, alcoholic, sorry. The alcohol board terminating him in 62, basically cutting off his money. His wife takes his kids away from him. He's had no visitation with them for an extended amount of time. And he's already got the prior existing condition. Yeah, and then now they're diagnosing him with something else. And yeah. He can't seem to get right. And Yeah, I mean, this is a guy whose life has taken a drastic turn for the worse within a relatively short period of time. 
Yeah, and and in some cases unfairly, you know. I mean, and I think it would be hard for someone without any problems to deal with that whole situation. So, you know, then you add all of the other problems he has, and it probably makes it fairly unbearable, which is why he was only saying the same thing to the doctors over and over. So September 20th, a few months later, 1963, Nagel was arrested for attempting to rob a state bank. He consistently denied that he, uh, from the document, he consistently denied he had tried to rob the bank, stated the fact that he fired two shots into the ceiling, proved he had not been trying to hit anyone. Nagel states that all of my problems have been solved for a long time, and now I won't have to go to Cuba. Some, yeah, some unaware of Nagel's years of uh, the claims of the Soviets or Cuba believe that Nagel was connected to Lee Harvey Oswald. This would be due to the timing of his bank episode and the general similarities regarding the two men. So while Oswald and Nagel were in Mexico, they both did visit diplomatic compounds, though Oswald allegedly went to the Soviet and Cuban embassies seeking to travel to Cuba, according to officials. Yet Nagel never directly attempts to leave for any Soviet-aligned country. He asks and threatens to abandon his citizenship, as Oswald once did, but Nagel never does. He initiates contact with officials and embassy for years, preceding any mention of Oswald. And a notebook that Nagel is apprehended with, a notebook, it makes reference now here where the similarities were, I think, you know, uh, people have drawn the, the illusion between the two of them. It did make mention of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and it did make uh, an organization that Oswald claimed he served in New Orleans, but we know that, you know, he made himself the head of a chapter that didn't exist. Uh, Oswald used the alias, this was also in Nagel's notebook, he, Oswald used the alias Alec Heidel, and Nagel had fake ID cards in his possession for Albert Hiddell, H-I-D-E-L. If the names exactly matched, I would agree there's a connection, but they don't. And it is a strange coincidence, but I don't think that that proves that it's the same person, you know what I mean? Right. It is, it is possible. I'm not going to say that it's impossible. Anything's possible. But Alec Heidel and Albert Hiddle aren't the same. Now, did, did he have any Oswald information on him at that time at the bank? According to the documents, no. Because I, I always heard he had a copy of his selective service identification. Oh, I'm sure that that got added in over time. But according to the document, I mean, and one is uh, is the police report and one's an FBI report. Or actually, I'm sorry, one's a police report, one's the CIA report. And uh, they did have, like, the, the, the Albert Hiddle thing was there. So I could see how that easily could have got turned into Alec Heidel. Right. And uh, he did have, uh, among, the, among his possessions, there was a list of six people. And each person was possibly a CIA employee. But I think that, and this goes into the next document, I think that the, though that would support Nagel having uh, classified knowledge, we have to remember he was in military intelligence. Right. So Nagel, Nagel used that classified knowledge and then claimed to be a CIA employee based on it when they questioned him about it. But the name Richard Fechtow, who was one of the names of Nagel's list, he was shot down in Manchuria in November of 1952, and I was quoted in the press admitting he wasn't—he was a CIA employee. So that's how Nagel could have gotten that information from him. The other names—the thing is—is is that each of the names could have been a CIA employee. There were people that matched the names, 
but it was a letter initial and the last name. So it isn't necessarily they were the exact people that were from the CIA. Like the other name was C. Churchill, and that wasn't identified by the agency, but they do say that it could have been Creighton Churchill, who was in Japan in 1952, another person that Nagel could have had contact with or could have read a file about because he was in, in Japan in the same area of influence that Nagel was. Right. And it's possible that some or even most on the list did work for the agency, but some of them were definitely people that Nagel could have had access to their information or observed in his prior service or been in the same city, stationed in the same city that they were. So it's possible in his interactions with officials that he made contact or even just observed these people, made the assumption, and made his list. So uh, additionally, there are several examples of agencies employed various unrelated people with similar names and using pseudonyms or aliases to confuse outside parties. Four of those contacted on the list stated they never met Nagel, but we know that they wouldn't admit it even if they had. The, you know, the agency doesn't admit, doesn't either confirms nor denies anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the list, I don't think it proves that he was connected to the agency, Beyond his, you know, what we can verify that he was in counterintelligence training in the military. But I think it has, he might have had insights from his prior military experiences and his repeated official appearances and the information the press provided. So they can be. I think that it's, it's more, it's reasonable to think that some, even all of the people on the list were CIA, but he would have had knowledge of many of them. It is possible that he got in contact some, you know, by some nefarious means with a member of the CIA that was on that list, but he could never prove it. He only basically had the list, had the uh, Hiddle thing, and had the fair play for Cuba. Gotcha. So, real quick, um, <clears throat> I was looking up this ID question here, mm -hmm. and I ran across where... It's stated, of course, it's not cited, but uh, where it says uh, Richard Case Nagel was arrested in September 63 with a near exact copy of Oswald's fake Selective Service ID card. Well, I would assume that would be the Hiddle. No, this is the Lee H. Oswald. Oh, no, no, no. What I'm saying is they're misinterpreting what the Hiddle card was. Because the only card that was on him, according to the arrest report, was the Hiddle card. No, they had. Well, they, they have a, a photocopy here of it, and... But that could be manipulated. It's possible, yeah. I, unless we have a, an original. I, I just think that it's... To me, it would seem a lot more likely that they took the Albert Hiddle and ran with it, rather than there was... Because I don't understand why it wouldn't be in the security file on Nagel, if he actually had that, because they have everything else that he had. Yeah, I'll send it to you because it's, okay. it's 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 uh, no, I believe I believe you that somebody. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the difference the difference this is, of course, uh, there's a different picture on the identification, and there's no stamp on it like you know the one that, that Lee Oswald had, and and the and the, uh, the signature is definitely not Lee Harvey Oswald's signature, but I'll send it to you and uh, okay. see what, see what you think. And we should also consider it could have been made after. This is this is true because we haven't found anywhere where you know this is turned up in the official record, at least not yet. So if anybody out there knows anything about this identification 
And if, in fact, Richard Case Nagel had this on him when he was arrested, point us in that general direction of official documents, please. Yeah, I'd be more than happy looking at any documents if they have them. It's, uh, you know, and it's not, I don't think outside, it's, I don't think it's unreasonable that this could have evolved from the Hiddle thing. It's close, you know what I mean? And unlike you or I, who probably pause a little bit more just to double check everything before we go out there, there are some people that'll just go out and say, well, Hiddle's Heidel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. It's just this, this is what I was talking about when, oh, okay. um, I know I'd seen it before. It's a, you know it's an actual copy or fake of Oswald's fake Selective Service card in his name. Yeah. Okay. So that that was the. Um, okay. So while while you're while you're looking for that, um, I'm going to go on to the next document. Uh, it says that uh, Nagel also had on him beyond uh, the the Hiddle card and the list. He had receipts for registered mail. This is the Hoover letter. Uh, receipts for registered mail that included one from the date Nagel would later claim proves he mailed J. Edgar Hoover a warning about the Kennedy assassination. Now, he did have an envelope, and the envelope did have a registered mail tag that it was sent on the day to Hoover, and he sent a couple others to other officials, but it was an empty envelope. It was opened. There was no letter in it. So without the letter, the receipt doesn't prove anything other than he sent a registered mail to Hoover. Right. You know, I mean, and once again, people might have tried to make more of that than it actually was. Yes, he did have the letter. Yes, it was registered to Hoover. It was before the assassination, but there was no letter. So, and of course, on the other end, even if a letter that had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination arrived, I have no doubt Hoover would suppress it. (laughs) Yeah. So, unless we can find that letter, once again, this comes up as a dead end. Yeah, it hasn't turned up yet. Yeah. I have a feeling if it did exist, it was probably in some of the files that Gandhi burned. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> okay, so then uh, we go from there. Nagel's cellmate in prison. Now, this is where it kind of gets, in my opinion, starts to get a little sad about him. Because Nagel's cellmate in prison alleged that following Nagel's discharge from the army and suffering from his crash injuries... He decided everything was against him in Los Angeles and made arrangements with the Communist Party to pick up a visa and passport from a contact in El Paso, Texas. But Nagel was afraid to do so. Yeah, so he basically, seemingly based on this, you know, what his cellmate tells, that he tried to defect again, sort of. (laughs) Except this time he was going to go through with it and they were going to give him the documents, but he was afraid to go through with it. So officials noted that a State Department file discloses about Nagel that he had prior claimed his passport was lost or stolen, which might imply that he surrendered it to the Soviets. Nagel was issued a new passport on August 6, 1963. Nagel, according to officials who checked him and a doctor and the cellmate, reportedly attempted suicide three times on the way to the bank. (laughs) They just found cuts all over his wrists and... So his actions may suggest that Nagel, due to his mental instability and confusion, might have dealt with a communist surrogate and believed the only way to break the association was to be exposed and arrested or to kill himself. Right, because now I believe he asserted part of this story to Hoover that 
he was assigned to actually kill Oswald, right? Yeah, yeah. The the couple of versions that I've come across were one was to kill Oswald, and the other was that he was going to actually be uh, be involved somehow in the plot. It isn't very specific. The thing that I saw. Right, or end up being the patsy, and then he figured yeah. that out. Yeah, and I think yeah. I mean, that's the as as much as the conflicts with Nagel exist. Boy, he would have been perfect <laughs> if I was planning a conspiracy. This is definitely the guy to use because he's totally reliable as far as anyone would think. Right. You know, so I I, I definitely understand why he's gone around so many times in the middle. Why Nagel has consistently come up again and again. There are a lot of details about him that would have been useful as a patsy, but it's just, you know, I mean, people in their desire to use him grasp with a few things that just don't end up panning out. So, um, yeah, so this is, this is the original. Before the, the Kennedy story comes up in 64 from Nagel, Nagel will not tell the press why he robbed the bank despite his claims later. At his trial on November 4, 1963, Nagel states, I had a motive for doing what I did, but my motive was not to hold up the bank. I do not intend to disclose my motive at this time. In December, following the assassination of President Kennedy, Marina Oswald is asked if she had any knowledge of Nagel, because Nagel says that he had met the Oswalds, and he had a, a, a short acquaintance with Oswald. And Marina Oswald disclaims any knowledge of Nagel, says she's never seen him. You know, he'd been disfigured in this plane crash, so he would have been like a memorable type dude. I mean, his face was a little yeah. jacked jacked up on the one side. But, I mean, he wasn't, you know, like uh, Frankenstein or anything looking. <laughs> yeah, definitely you would have, you would have seen him. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, he was memorable. Because I think he was a pretty pretty big, big dude, too, and like height-wise. Mm-hmm. Broad shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, he was former military, and I, I'm sure that he definitely cut a figure at the time before the crash. But yeah, after the crash, I would definitely think if Nagel had made repeated appearances, like is claimed by some, with Oswald, Moreno would have seen him or remembered him. Right. So, um, then what are we on? I want to make sure, because I know we burned through it. One, two, three, four... Five, six, seven, document eight. Um, Nagel, at the beginning of 1964, fails to mention any connection to a specific assassination plot and will not give the motive for his actions to officials. Nagel then attempts to explain himself uh, with the following claim. On January 4th, 1964, Nagel submits a statement from jail. In the statement, he claims that while visiting Mexico City, an unnamed person from an unknown government proposed a plot to him in 1962 that he refused. This is after the Oswald story comes out, and some of the details have been in the press for months. So, not to say that Nagel was doing it, I mean, it is possible, whether, but he had access to, he could make his story start to sound like Oswald more because it had already happened. You know, these aren't like insights coming from a guy before any of the Oswald stuff's in the press. Right. So the alleged plot that calls for Nagel's participation is he asserts to have been again presented to him in May 1963, and he said he then agreed to this plot. 
Nagel states in September 63, he refused to undertake the plan when again contacted by the unknown foreign contact. Nagel claims if he did not participate, a threat was made to release derogatory information to the FBI, which honestly to me, that just sounds ridiculous because what the hell could they put out that hadn't already been put out by some officials at that point? (laughs) But anyway, uh, so, however, this reason is invalid since the FBI had already obtained large amounts of conflicting interrogatory information uh, just from the prior contacts Nagel himself had made with them. I mean, they already had – they didn't need to make him look any worse. Right. If they wanted to really slam him, they could just pull out every contact he had made since 59. Yeah, and every doctor's visit. Yeah, and there <laughs> were at least three of those, so – so, yeah, his unnamed figure in unknown government contact, too, suggests a vague plot that he never mentions before the Kennedy assassination. So that's where I have some questions. You know, Nagel did prior allude to strange possibilities, but little beyond his claim support the, you know, the evolving ideas. Notably, we should regard Nagel's attempt to use the claim to prove he was not guilty and deserved to be released. Nagel tried to say because that it had something to do with the Kennedy assassination, he should be released because he's giving this information. Right. So he then is committed for 30 days to a psychiatric <clears throat> observation and then is sentenced to 10 years in prison. He, uh, Nagel, while he's in custody and jail being transferred, he swallows several sleeping pills while lodged at the El Paso County Jail and almost dies. Here's my question. Officials do not explain how he gained access to the pills. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think that to be readily available. Um, but then again, maybe it's... Maybe might have been part of his medical treatment. Could be. You're right. I didn't even. Yeah. I didn't even consider. I just. I think that's strange. That you know. But I mean. Yeah. Then he might have I mean, stockpiled him. And... Yeah, you're right. So yeah, he tries to kill himself again. Because because I believe. Prison. Yeah. I mean. He, I I don't think he served the entire ten years. I believe they did another review of him and deemed him to be competent and let him out yeah. of prison. And, yeah, that happened a few times during the course of the events, too, is that Nagel, he would have moments of lucidity where he was fine. Yeah, but I think he was only in there like four and a half years, I think, and they yeah, let him I know out. it was reduced, but uh, I don't know the exact number, but yeah, I know it was reduced, and I know that later on they did find him to be lucid, even though he keeps shifting back and forth. Yeah, which makes you wonder if this paranoia or mental condition is not necessarily... Legit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Is he? Yeah. I mean, it's that's like we talked about earlier. It's possible. I definitely think he had some problems. Now, whether what, how much control he had over them is definitely the issue. Right. And so, what I think another I I was happy that I was able to to find this in the security file, but uh, it was the statement of Nagel's sister because she was the one who pretty much had the most that I could find personal contact. He lived with her for a time. So she basically got to see him up close where a lot of people, you know, just speculated on him. So Nagel, uh, so the unnamed figure, you know, the, the, there's the suicide attempt. So evidence and the statement of Nagel's sister, Eleanor Gambert, with whom he later resided, contradict his kind of the assassination claims. Gambert, during an interview with the FBI, this is right after the the bank robbery, offered that she has no reason to believe that her brother is not responsible for his actions. And she noted that in one letter he wrote to her that the bank robbery attempt was a premeditated action on his part. 
She advised her brother had been in a depressed state of mind ever since he had been accused of taking a bribe and fired from his position with the California State Liquor Authority. Now, I don't think that her words are definitive, but I think they make a lot more sense. That, you know, yeah. like, we, like we were talking about earlier, his life was falling apart. So basically, he was doing anything he could to try to stop that. And eventually, I think, you know, he, despite realizing what some of the probably more reasonable motivations for what he did at the bank, he came up with that story because, you know, it could be a million different reasons. Embarrassment, you know, maybe he didn't remember. You know, he at the time had three suicide attempts, so it's not like he was in the best state of mind. I think her statement's reasonable. You know, I, I don't think she had a reason to lie about her brother, especially since she ended up opening her house to him. Right, yeah, I think he was uh, only there for like six months or so, right? Mostly unemployed at the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, she could have had motivations. You know, maybe they didn't get along. There could, there could be reasoning, but I just don't see it right after. You know, I mean, I, I knew she was probably mad at her brother for doing, you know, what he did, but I don't really see a reason that she's just going to make up you know, those, it, it, it's accurate as far as the files go that, you know, he was going through a lot at that time and, you know, people have done crazier things for less. So in my opinion, right. Okay. So I know I'm trying to trying to make this more, less sad. <laughs> <laughs> like I told you, I'm starting to tear up over here, man. Now, the farther I got with this, I was like, normally it doesn't bother me. Like I said, I'm pretty callous from all the horrific stuff we've seen in these files, but with this one is just like, man, uh, poor guy. <laughs> okay. So, um, so in time, Nagel's claims evolve. This is the ninth document. I believe in a subsequent ramparts magazine interview, Nagel purports from Leavenworth prison that he was a CIA agent. However, we know that no evidence confirms this. None that anyway has been presented. Uh, he was in the military intelligence prior, but was not verifiably used by the agency. And the military had discharged him long before. An internal agency file states that the subject's file reflects no agency interest in him prior to March 64, when the names of CIA employees were found in his possession when arrested for a bank robbery. So the agency didn't really take any interest in him until they found out that he might have a list of their of possible agents. Gotcha. Which isn't unreasonable. They would have really had no reason because he was in military intelligence and he wasn't officially assigned. There were people definitely that crossed over, like Colonel Sheffield Edwards, who was fairly up in the agency. You know, there were definitely examples of people who did both, but with Nagel, he wasn't really in that long. So there's no reason to believe that he automatically would have had agency affiliation. The only contact the agency saw with him was to determine how he was in possession of classified material. Now, privately in the memo, the the author even from the agency even says that his 10 year sentence was harsh due to the brain damage that Nagel prior suffered. They thought that he shouldn't have gone to jail for as long as he did. But ramparts correctly states that Nagel was a highly decorated captain in Korea. And he did graduate the military intelligence Academy after the crash. However, Nagel has a developing mental illness and possibly did not immediately or consistently manifest. So that oversight might explain why Nagel's improbable story could not. You know, I mean, he tells Ramparts basically a different version of what happened, and we can see that just from his prior statements. Right. So now it's not just that he was somehow involved with the assassination. It's he worked for the CIA. 
and he was involved with the assassination. And that's where the uh, it's that they describe it, I believe, as Manchurian candidate. And then in another later on, the last document is Nagel actually writing to complain to somebody about calling him a Manchurian candidate in one of their news articles. After the Ramparts article, uh, Nagel's later story asserts to Ramparts that he staged the affair, the bank robbery, because he wanted to be in custody as an alibi when the assassination took place. Yet Nagel's statements and claims before the Kennedy assassination prove that this latest claim was not reliable. It's merely the first in the series of claims. Right. Rampart states, you know, he, he did send a registered letter to J. Edgar Hoover, and we know he did have the dated envelope, but no letter was ever actually produced. And it wasn't in the article, so I assume he never gave Ramparts that letter. So the FBI and later President's Commission take a statement from Nagel, which Nagel states his association with Oswald was purely social, and he had met him in Texas and Mexico, but we know that Marina said they had never met. And Oswald didn't go to the American embassies in Mexico, so there's no reason to believe that they ever crossed paths either, and Nagel was there at different times most of the time. So here's where... I really started to have some doubts in Nagel because of how he... It's not just officials he tries to blame. I'll say that. Following Nagel's statements in the media, he was visited by New Orleans prosecutor Jim Garrison. Nagel told officials on a seeming lucid day of prior informing Garrison he had no information of use to him. Nagel also spoke to officials and stated fearing that Garrison might subpoena him and the CIA might try to eliminate him. He said the CIA fear was planted in his mind by Garrison. So now he's kind of playing both sides against the other. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I can see Garrison telling him that. I say, look, you know, the CIA is asking about you, breathing down my neck, you know, to say you got information, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it wouldn't be easy to disturb an easily disturbable man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that, you know, it's like, for me, it becomes, it starts, it's the beginning of a pattern. Like, you know, he's blaming the Alcoholic Commission for his firing. Then he's blaming the CIA and, uh, you know, foreign agents for him getting arrested. And then he's saying that it had to do with the Kennedy assassination. And then he's saying that Jim Garrison is, you know, is the one who put this fear in his mind. I'm sure the fear was already there based on all the other stuff. But I just, you know, it's it's he starts to like start blaming these ghosts that are, are kind of his own creation on other people. So yeah, I, I think Garrison could have said that to him. I just think that he might have blown it out of proportion. <laughs> and like you said, he was easily disturbed. So, and then uh, that the next two documents uh, basically are corroborative of this little section that Nagel arrived in Zurich, Switzerland. And he makes repeated threats at the American embassy to expose the U.S. government for their role in his alleged persecution. So now this is, he threatened the embassy people in Mexico. (laughs) Now he's threatening them in Zurich. He goes to Europe to to launch this series of threats. So uh, I believe it was the last, yeah, we're in the last couple of documents. Um, because the last two were just, the first one was the actual Zurich cable, and the other was uh, a summary of what, what Nagel said when he was there. Um, 
yeah, in the cable it says Nagel last appeared at Zurich Consulate morning 7 March and stated if he received no satisfaction by 5 o'clock that afternoon, he would carry out his threats and expose the U.S. government on radio, television, and in the press. He then disappeared, nothing further heard from him, and no publicity given. Morn- Monday, March 10th, Consulate Zurich advised by telephone from Consulate Barcelona that Nagel had approached them and made similar threats. So he then goes from Switzerland to Spain. <laughs> Or calls Spain, yeah, by telephone, calls Spain, and then threatens them. <laughs> okay, so this is where, uh, yeah, even stranger. It, it gets even stranger. So Nagel, for some reason, decides that he might like to defect to, East, to the Soviet Union or to an Iron Curtain country. So he decides to travel through East Germany on the far side of the wall, and was captured in conditions. <laughs> they hold him and accuse him of being a spy for months, and Nagel's defense was pretending to be more mentally ill than he actually was, according to Nagel, when he uh, gives his interview when he's released. Oh, that's Nagel, interesting. Yeah. So he can turn it on and turn it off when he wants to. Exactly. Apparently, yeah, apparently yeah. He, he has some facility with turning it on and off. So Nagel affirms to officials that he no longer believes it is realistic to think the CIA was trying to kill him. He termed himself chronically paranoid. One army psychiatrist describes Nagel as currently not psychotic and seems competent in the legal and psychiatric sense. Yet his diverging actions and all the other medical opinions would support that sometimes he is overcome with paranoid psychosis. So Nagel eventually is freed by acting crazier than he is. He's returned to West Germany, and a psychiatrist uh, whose report is submitted to the Department of State examines him. After listing uh, Nagel's major biographic points, the document states that pondering his prior attempt at bank robbery was bred out of his feelings of hopelessness and desperation. He claims that in a confused way he attempted, while armed, to rob a bank and was easily apprehended. You know, we also should consider that Nagel had three prison-ordered psychiatric evaluations and hospitalizations, and then the four suicide attempts. So, noted American neurologist Dr. Edward Weinstein is eventually consulted, and he interprets Nagel's medical data as being abnormal, and argued that Nagel had developed a paranoid personality and instability. Uh, so, Nagel then attempts to blame some of his problems on Ramparts magazine <laughs> for publishing the very claims he made. <laughs> Just as he prior blamed Jim Garrison, the CIA, the U.S. government, and, you know, others. So I guess they're basically saying that he might have been mildly schizophrenic. Is that the same thing as paranoid, what they called back then? Uh, I th- yeah, paranoid psychosis. Yeah, I would think that, yeah, either schizophrenia or, uh, you know, just delusional. Some, some type of delusional, yeah, delusional state that he goes into. Now, based on his actions in East Germany, you're right. It's, you never know. He might not, you know, he might be crazy as a fox. Maybe he just turns it on, or maybe he already has something and then just gives into it and turns it up <laughs> yeah. to get done what it wants to get done. So, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, that's in sent an airgram to the Department of State. Um, then the final document, uh, this is a letter Nagel writes in 1975 to the editor of the Los Angeles Free Press. Uh, as the years go on, you know, uh, in 75, Nagel writes a letter uh, for corrections. He wants corrections and submits it, 
regarding the media's implied connection of him to Oswald. Nagel states that the story titled Bank Robber Manchurian Candidate linked to JFK assassinated probe. He requests that the paper either print a retraction of such lies and distortions or publish his submitted letter. In his letter, Nagel states that the author, William Turner, knowingly and purposefully cited numerous lies about me. He states that Professor Richard H. Popkin, from Turner, uh, Turner's obviously, from who Turner obviously collected much of his latest baloney, these are Nagel's words, is a character that I feel should either be purchased a hearing aid or consult a psychiatrist. And this is the author of the second Oswald, right? Yeah. Okay. Which is kind of funny that Nagel is calling someone's psychiatrist. Yeah. Uh, Nagel then covers the article portion he disputes and says that these include saying that he never stated to anybody verbally or in writing that in 1963 I was an agent for the CIA. But we know that that's not true because he did say that later on. I don't know if he said 63, but we know for sure he told Ramparts he was a CIA agent. Uh, although in 1964, I did state under oath that I thought I have been functioning for the CIA during part of 1963. Right. Nagel claims he never worked for Cuban intelligence nor any other person to undertake the assassination. Especially in light of his mental episodes, I'd say that this is pretty observably inconsistent. You know, I mean, he's basically saying that he didn't say a lot of the things we know he said, uh, unless all the other sources are lying, which I think is highly improbable. Right. Especially, you know, when you consider his sister <laughs> was one of them. Yeah. So I'd say based on corroborative evidence, you know, there's definitely unanswered questions with Nagel, and there's definitely possibilities, like you said, that he could have been used by officials, non-officials, you know, by some source, even as a distraction or just serving as disinformation for whatever goal. But I don't find that he has any, you know, discernible, definitive connection to the Kennedy assassination. Now, do we know if if he was investigated as part of the HSCA? I, yeah, we know that I believe a picture, at least one picture of him exists, and they looked into some of it, but yeah, they couldn't they couldn't discern whether or not beyond his statements, if there's any truth to it, because at the time, a lot of these files that we went over were classified. So the CIA didn't offer up a lot of security files. Right. Cause I, I got a little something here. If, if that wraps you up there, Carmine on that. Yeah. Okay. I got a little something here. Of course, everybody is familiar out there with the book by author Dick Russell, uh, the man who knew too much. Is all about Richard Case Nagel's story, and I would highly recommend that everybody out there check it out. Um, it's a it's a very well written book, and you know Dick Russell actually had correspondence with with Richard Case Nagel. Now, the problem is, of course, that that Richard Case Nagel swore that he had uh, a life insurance which is what, what he called it is, is certain pieces of evidence that would surface in the event of his death. And and this stuff was said to include an audio tape recording of a conversation that Gale secretly made of himself, Lee Oswald, and several alleged assassination conspirators, and a photograph of Nigel and Oswald together in New Orleans in 1963. Um, now, staff members of Probe, uh, the newsletter for, for uh, CTKA, report going to Nigel's apartment 
uh, as soon as he learned of his death. Now, Miguel actually died on November 1st of, I believe, 1995. Um, they actually got, they got to his apartment, uh, on November the 4th. Uh, they write that the inside door to the apartment was open and one could look inside. Uh, the place appeared to be barren. If Miguel left anything of importance behind, it doesn't seem to have been there anymore. And this said, uh, life insurance never has surfaced. Uh, so, but will we ever know, you know? I mean, yeah, I think that that might be similar to the when he, the threat that he made to officials when he said that it would all go to the press. You know, yeah. he would expose everything and it would cost them millions and nothing ever gets turned up. <laughs> yeah, no, he was 65 at the time he died. Uh, it was claimed to be a heart attack. I believe it was uh, one week before. I believe he was going to be talking to the AARB. I believe they were in contact with him as well, uh, under the uh, auspices of Dick Russell. Uh, so, you know, is his death a coincidence? Uh, you know, of timing. You know, it's 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 hard to say. You know, a lot of people say that Miguel. You know, he, of course, who claimed to have foreknowledge of the JFK assassination and the activities of Lee Oswald was considered to be one of the last people alive, possibly, with information to crack the Kennedy case. Um, so, you know, will we ever know the actual truth? You know, his life insurance, his, his, this so-called evidence has never surfaced. It was claimed not to have been there by, you know, the people that came and got his body, you know, the investigators, the police, uh, you know. But according to the, the, the these... uh staff members approved that the, the apartment was cleaned in quotations. Uh, there was nothing at all having to do with the Kennedy assassination whatsoever found there. And to be honest, I don't know if there ever was, you know, yeah, I mean, it's possible, but if Miguel actually had information like that, it would be in a safe deposit box. Right. He wouldn't have just stuck it under his bed in his apartment. <laughs> right. In my opinion. <laughs> right. But, it, you know, why hasn't it surfaced? I mean, you'd think he would give somebody access to this stuff to say, hey, look, if I die, I get this to every news outlet on the planet, you know. Yeah. And who knows how lucid he was at the end, you know. I mean, if real brain damage had progressed, he could have been, you know, really bad at the very end. Uh, you know, I've worked a couple of times with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia patients. And they have, you know, as, as they get older, it, it progressively gets worse and worse until they can almost not function. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's the exact same with Miguel. He didn't have Alzheimer's to my knowledge or dementia, but he did. He had a, a delusional aspects definitely to a psychosis. Yeah. Well, when, when Dick Russell was speaking at a conference in 95, he said this, he said, uh, Quote, and then as the conversation went on, it became to seem very strange to me because he hadn't even mentioned the fact that I'd written this book, this massive book about him. And finally, I'd also written him a number of letters when I was putting the book together, hoping that he would get back in touch with me at that time. So I said, uh, Dick, referring to Nigel, I'm really glad to hear you hear from you, but 
I said, I wrote you a number of letters over the last few years. And he said, oh, really? I think maybe I've gotten one or two of them. And I said, you are aware that I've written a huge unauthorized biography of you, right? And he said he had no idea. I had sent him the book, and obviously he had never received it. I think he was telling me the truth. He began going on about how the post office was still checking on his mail, and somebody was running off with his stuff, and he had no idea. So I said, I can't believe none of your friends wouldn't have told you that this book was out. He said, well, I don't have that many friends, and the ones I do don't speak. A lot of them don't even speak English. So... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he doesn't sound very lucid there near the end Uh, yes yes that doesn't sound very lucid good that's a good one man i didn't even i'm glad that i can rely on you and chuck to give the book some of the more interesting book information (laughs) yeah i mean that is that's a hell of a that's a hell of a quote that is a hell of a quote and uh (laughs) you know i said dick russell you know he had been trying to, to, to get, get in contact with Nigel. He knew where he lived. He had sent him letters. He tried calling him. And, you know, nothing, you know. And until the book actually had come out, he actually got in touch with him. And Nigel didn't even know it. Or he, at least he stated that he never knew what was going on. And, and of course, you know, the, the correspondence we have after that is 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 just prior to his death. Um, of course, came after the book was out. And I'm not sure if he, uh, you know, updated the book after Nigel's death with the new information. Um, actually getting to talk to Nigel, but uh, I think because my copy is like a first gen copy, so it doesn't have any of that in it. Um, but I know Dick Russell's still out there, and you know, I might uh, might try to get him on the show in the fe- in the future. I mean, I think that'd be kind of interesting, huh? Yeah, that'd be cool to listen to. Get his pit up. Definitely be interested, yeah, to see what, yeah, his interactions, if they're all as strange as that one. Yeah, from know. somebody that actually, you know, got to talk to him back then. Um, but yeah, cool. Well, so that about wraps it up on Richard Case Nagel, huh, Carmine? Yeah, I think that we, uh, we were kind as we possibly could be. And usually I don't try to be kind, as you know, I want the bare facts. But with him, the bare facts are kind of sad at some points, you know, and and confusing. And it really it doesn't surprise me that so many people have conflicting ideas about him because he had conflicting ideas about himself. You know, he told different versions to different people, and it all got mixed up in the historical record. Yeah, and the, and the one thing that bothers me is if if and I sent you the picture on Facebook for you to check it out of that this okay. ID. Um, if this is genuine then then we got a problem <laughs> okay because it throws a gigantic wrench into everything if richard case Nagel had a photocopy of a false copy of oswald's false secret service identification or uh not secret service selective service identification then that's a whole another gigantic huge problem and another question with no answer um like I said, if anybody else out there knows the providence of this image that, that, that I found, then I will post it over at TLGpodcast.com so you can see it with your own two eyes. Um, it's, it's clearly a fake. It's, it's, the, the signature clearly does not look like Lee Oswald's. It's got a different picture, no stamp, but the numbers are the same. The information on the card is the same. 
And I remember reading somewhere that it was found among his possessions in his trunk when he was arrested uh, for, for allegedly robbing this bank. And, I, of course, I can't remember where I read that. But if anybody knows anything about it, get at us. Uh, you can shoot me an email at the Lungoman Podcast at gmail.com or hit me or call mine up on Facebook. We'd greatly appreciate it. Um, are, are you looking at it yet there, Carmine? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm looking at it. No, I, I don't. I don't doubt that it might be the exact same one. I just would, yeah. We, you need a first generation copy of it that can be verified by photo experts because, I mean, as you know, I usually don't comment almost at all. Yeah, on the photography stuff just because it's been manipulated so many times. <laughs> yeah, I would just Not want necessarily this, but yeah. Yeah, I would just want to know the provenance of that because if that actual photo on the left, which is a, a photocopy allegedly found with Miguel's possessions that, you know, before the assassination, um, then we got a problem. But, uh, you know, well, ho- you, is, I'm sorry, I was going to say, if you could get, send me a link of the website, I'll check out just a, well, I just found that image. It was in a, oh, uh, okay. Google images. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was in, a, it was in a, uh, discussion thread on some weird website, you know, like oh, okay. above top secret or something. But, okay. um, yeah, like I said, I have no provenance on the picture. I just remember reading about it somewhere and I cannot for the life of me remember where or where this information is coming from that is stuck in my brain in the deep recesses. But, um, if anybody out there knows that, you know, where, where this image comes from or if we have any documentation about it, uh, get at us and let us know because it would definitely uh, maybe change perceptions a little bit if it can be proven that this ID was included among Richard Case Nagel's possessions before the assassination. Um, but like I said, we have no verifiable proof of that as of yet. You know, f- fake stuff pops up all the time. But uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, fake evidence pops up all the time. So... You know, if anybody knows anything about this identification card that is clearly not Lee Oswald's, allegedly found with Richard Case Nagel when he was arrested, get at us one way or the other. Email, Facebook. We're not hard to find. On Twitter, whatever. Um, Carmine, if you would please plug away, tell people where they can find your book, tell people where they can follow you at on Twitter and Facebook, and tell everybody a little bit about what you're going to be doing this November. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, people can find uh, the book at tpaak.com, T-P-A-A-K.com, Two Princes and a King. Um, we also have primary evidence collections there with a lot of evidence that you might not have seen in other places. Uh, and anything new that I or anyone in the Neapolis Media Group finds, you can find Neapolis Media Group at neamg, N-E-A-M-G.com. Uh, I'm, as Rob said earlier, I'm going to be speaking at the NID conference uh, for JFK Lancer. I'm going to be covering myths and evidence, some of the the, the newer myths, both public and official. <laughs> and I'm going to be going into uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, I uh, found some interesting things about the Oswald timeline. So I'm going to be doing uh, part of my speech on that and just going delving into showing the very small amount of time and how improbable the official timeline is as far as Oswald in those last 72 hours. And I'm eventually going to post that on the site once I get the speech, but they get to hear it first. <laughs> hey, I got an idea. I, I can write the speech for you and you could be done in like less than a minute. You want to hear it real quick? <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the NID Dallas Conference. My name is Carmine Savastano. I'll be talking about myths and legends, uh, you know, having to do with the Kennedy assassination. Um, well, wait a minute. Why, why should I even stand up here and tell you? Let's just take a little walk down the street to the other conference, and you can hear all about them for yourself. The end. <laughs> nice. Well, yes, I'm sure. Unfortunately, at the other conference, the myths are going to be presented as truth. I don't even call it a conference. It's the circus down the street. Yeah. Sorry, man. I had to take a little low blow right there, you know. Just oh, turn, no, turn. Totally, hey, with the amount of, of mythical material that the Judith Baker crowd and her conference pump out. I understand why people would not be happy about it. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of it. And, you know, there, there's there's some credible names sprinkled in there. I don't know why, but... Uh, I know. Yeah, I was I was disappointed to see that, unfortunately, some of the people who people consider credible are going to be speaking down there, but yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, maybe they'll see the light when they get there and figure out that they're at the... Uh, Sideshow Carnival and not at the main circus tent. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Well, people too have been telling me, they've been warning me, they're like, you know, some people aren't going to like, oh well, people don't like what I have to say now already. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. But know, I, most people seem to like what I have to say, but yeah, there's going to be people who are committed to a story that they don't have evidence for, and what, what can I tell you? you got to get over it. If the truth is the truth, it's the truth even when we don't like it. Yeah, and I mean... I, yeah, I'm sure you know what to do, but you know, emphasize that this is what the documents tell us. This is our evidence, yeah. you know, and without anything else, it's just a story, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And if you want to put your faith in a story, you go right ahead. But good luck to you. <laughs> you know, it, stuff needs to be verifiable, and I think I think most of the people there, um, you know, are good guys like Larry Hancock, Stu Wexler, and and these guys know the importance of of um, you know, primary documents. So. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have a problem, uh, you know. No, I think I think I'll be okay. The, yeah, the, the knives will come out in the in the private meetings later. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Carmine, it's been a pleasure as always, my friend, and uh, hopefully we get you back on here a little sooner than we did this time. I've been on hiatus for like two months, so. Yeah, you got a lot going on. I understand. Hopefully, yeah, I'll get back in here and we'll cover at least one other topic before the speech. Oh, definitely. And I want to definitely have you back on after you go to November so yeah, okay. we can hear all the, the horror stories. <laughs> the, all the war tales and horror stories because I know having, I don't, I've never been to a conference before and uh, yeah, my perception was totally different than the reality and we had a lot of had a lot of fun. Trust me, a lot of good stories, and it was it's an experience, and and you're gonna dig it. Um, and I want to hear all about it when you get back. But yeah, we'll definitely talk before then. Um, and dude, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate you having me, man. It's always a pleasure. No problem. You hang on for me, everybody. Head over to tlgpodcast.com for pictures of the identification. I'm going to post links to all the documents that we talked about here today uh, that Carmine has supplied for us, and you can see them with your own two eyes and make your own conclusions. Um, that's it for this week, people. This son bitch is in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Back. Peace.
you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.